The following audio is from LifePoint Church, located in O'Fallon, Missouri. For more information about LifePoint Church, visit us online at thelifepointconnection.com. Amen. At this time, the kids can go ahead and be dismissed to their classes. And if you have uh, Bibles, go ahead and grab those and open those up to uh, Acts chapter 4. Well, good morning. Uh, If you're new here, let me welcome you. My name's Eric. Uh, I'm the lead teaching pastor here. And we've been going through the book of Acts uh, week by week for the last nine weeks. Uh, And so I'm excited to uh, open the Word of God with you. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those out of the lobby. Uh, That is our gift to you. We believe faith comes by hearing. When God brought the people of Israel out of slavery and out of Egypt, he took them into the wilderness. And he took them there in order uh, to prepare their hearts. Everyone say hearts. You, You know, this is about our hearts. God wants to prepare our hearts. God wants to do something in our hearts. He does, doesn't want us to uh, simply show up and attend and, and, and do some outward things without first having our hearts. And so he takes them into the wilderness and he, he works on their hearts and he's preparing them to bring them into the promised land. However, uh, when they get to the promised land, they first needed to go through this fortified city. Does anyone remember the name of the city? Starts with a J, rhymes with Erico. Takes them through Jericho. And, and, so, and so it was the most unique battle, I think, in the, in, in the scriptures, uh, because what happened was uh, they didn't want to use the army, uh, but instead they used the marching band. And so they said, uh, grab the trumpets, grab your boots, you're going to blow the trumpets, you're going to march around, and I'm going to give you the victory. And so they march around, and the walls fall, and they take the city of Jericho, and they all rejoice in what God has done. But then, in Joshua chapter 7, it says their next battle is this little post- Town called AI. And so they're thinking, you know what? This is like this is like going from New York City to like Forestell. Maybe. Moscow Mills, I don't know. They're like, you know what? This this town, I mean, they don't they don't have it like Jericho did. I got an idea. Let's send in the JV squad. All right, let's just send in the, you know, the guys who normally sit on the bench. Let's get them some playing time. Let's get them into the battle. And so they say, okay, let's send them in. And so they go in, and all of a sudden, they get, uh, they get their butts kicked. All right, and, and so they go into this little town, and, and they, they face the battle, and they don't win. And Joshua, he goes to God, and he says, God, what in the world happened? Why weren't we able to take this this little town? And God says, it's because there's sin in the camp. God says, it's because uh, there's there's hidden sin among the people. And and so let me just pause right here and, and, and tell you, sometimes we wonder why we don't have the victory over the little battles in our lives. We, we wonder why we can't move forward spiritually. And, and Joshua, he goes to God and he says, God, why can't we take this little town? Why can't we take this city? He says, because there's sin in the camp. And so God desires for you, each one of us today, to deal with the hidden things within our hearts before he's going to give us the land. And Joshua, he says, okay, he asks the obvious question. You know what the question is. Who is it? Hey, 
If we wanna move forward, we gotta, we, gotta, we gotta get after this thing. We gotta know like what's going on and who it is. And so God says, okay, this is what I want you to do. I want you to separate out the people into the 12 tribes of Israel. So they separate out in the 12 tribes, and then he says, okay, out of the 12 tribes, I want you to pull out the tribe of Judah. And then from the tribe of Judah, I want you to separate that tribe into these different clans. And then I want you to separate out this one clan. And out of this one clan, I want you to separate out the different families, and I want you to set aside this one family. And then I want you to bring forth this one family. And from that one family, I want you to separate out and bring forth one man, and his name is Achan. Da-da-da-da. Here he is. They bring forth Achan, and they go into his tent, and they pull back the floor, and they find all of these stolen treasures that God actually had forbidden them to take from the city of Jericho. And so here's the point. From the outside looking in and looking among the crowds, you wouldn't be able to distinguish Achan from all of the other men. From the outside in, you wouldn't be able to distinguish, oh, it's that guy. Oh, it's obviously that guy. Look at the way he dressed. Look at the way he talks. Look at the way he walks. No, on the outside, everything is normal. God has to reveal, hey, this is the man that has sin in his heart. And so there's stuff buried in his tent that no one else could see. There's things that he hid from others. But listen, it's never hidden from God. Amen? What's in your tent? In the church, there's a lot of different kinds of people. Two in particular. Jesus would call them the wheat and the weeds. And it's hard to distinguish them on the outside. It's nearly impossible to distinguish them from just habits or routines. Jesus says there are wheat and there's weeds. In Matthew 13, Jesus comes and he puts a parable before them. And he says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed. Everyone say seed. So he sows good seed into his field, but while his men were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed weeds. He sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. In, in the Bible, it says that these, wheat, these weeds, they're actually called tares. And so I looked it up and said, okay, what is this tear? What is this thing? What is this kind of weed? And it's a kind of weed that actually looks a lot like wheat. So as it grows up, you, don't, you can't really distinguish, well, what's the wheat and what's the tear? And he says the enemy comes and he sows these weeds into the field and it grows up together and it's hard for you to really distinguish who is who. So when the plants came up before the grain and the weeds appeared also and the servants of the master of the house came and said to them, Master, do you not sow good seed? Everyone say seed. Did you not sow the good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, the enemy has done this. So the servant said to them, then do you want us to go and gather them? And he said, no, 
Because if in your gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them, let them both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them into the bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat into my barn. The difference between the wheat and the weeds is the seed. On the outside, they look the same. But on the inside, completely different. The difference between the wheat and the weed is the seed. The seed is what's planted underneath. And let me just remind you, there is a good sower and there's an enemy sower. There's one who scatters good seed, who is the master, and there's an enemy who scatters bad seed. And so the difference between the wheat and the, and the weed is the seed. And the enemy has come and he scatters seed among the church universal. He scatters seed and many have become great imitators. Don't I look like wheat? Don't I look nice? Don't I look good? Don't I operate the same way? Don't I do the same things? Don't I look like wheat? And many have become imitators and we've learned to mimic and we've learned the motions and we learn the words of religious culture and oftentimes our heart is not even converted because we don't have the right seed. We've never repented. We've never turned from our sin. We've never been honest with what's in our tent or what's in our camp. Instead, we just simply hide or we pretend. And so let me tell you today, friend, the Holy Spirit knows your thoughts. The Holy Spirit knows what's in your tent. And the Holy Spirit knows what's in your heart. He knows how we hide and we pretend from others on a continuous basis. And so we become deceived we become so deceived because we're so consumed with our appearance on the outside, but never actually deal with on the inside. And so you neglect ever dealing with your heart, never actually examining yourself, never actually coming forth to God and say, God, this is who I am, yet he already knows. And so we're just so consumed with how other people would perceive us. I tell you this, because the fear of the Lord is a part of worship. Most people say, oh, I, I, we, don't, we don't talk about fear. The fear of the Lord is a part of worship. In, in Romans uh, chapter uh, 11, it, it, says, it says, lay down your pride and fear God. And it says, take note of then the kindness and the severity of God. We love the kindness, we love the grace, we love the mercy, and I thank God for that because without it, I am lost, I am done, I am spent, I am broken, I am a dead man without his grace, amen? But he also says, take note of the severity of God. So we are to know the kindness, yes, and the severity. And so may we see God who is so holy, that even one sin in his presence is like, is, like, is like a butterfly trying to land on the surface of the sun. 
Like even the smallest sin, even the hidden treasure, even the smallest lie would somehow warrant the severity of God. Yet it is through faith in Jesus Christ that we're made pure, that we are protected, that we are safe in him, that we are made pure and righteous and holy so that we can enter into his presence. And we praise God as we come toward him with great trembling. Because at his glory and at his power, we see his holiness. As the fear of the Lord increases, so does the sense of his love. As the fear of the Lord rises among his people, so does his kindness. It's like, it's like looking out your window into uh, the most severe thunder snowstorm you could ever imagine and you're so thankful for the protection of your home. It's like, it's like God puts you into the cleft of the rock, right, as the storm moves forward and that cleft is Christ himself. And so he says, note the severity and the kindness of God. And today, in Acts chapter four, we get to see both. Look in Acts 4, starting in verse 32. So there's persecution in the church for talking about Jesus. People come to faith in Jesus. The multitudes rise up. More people come together. They're praying for boldness. They're praying that the move of God would continue. And in verse 32, it says this. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Now at this point, we see about 5,000, maybe more. You got 3,000 in Acts 2, you got 5,000 in Acts 4, and then you got more people coming. And so the full number of those, thousands of people, were one heart and one soul. And no one said any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Verse 33. And with great power, everyone say power. So with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus, of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Let me just pause right there and tell you this. When the Holy Spirit fills you, what happens is you testify about Jesus Christ, his resurrection, as that he is Lord. That's what happens. Great power to testify. Verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. For as many were owners of lands and houses sold them, they brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. These people, they were the most generous people on the entire planet. Nobody, nobody was like, hey, 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 that's mine. Right, you ever write your name on the leftovers in the refrigerator? You take your lunch to work, you're like, no, 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 this is Bob's sandwich, right? No, listen, no one out of these thousands of people were like, hey, 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 that's mine. No, they had everything in common, all of their properties, all of their possessions, all of their goods, even their toothbrushes. That's gross, probably not toothbrushes. Okay, here's, here's the point. The gospel seed loosens your grip on stuff and tightens your grip on each other. When you've, when you've been planted with the gospel seed by the Holy Spirit, what happens is all of a sudden that, that, that seed starts to take root into my heart and the result of that seed is it starts loosening my grip on the stuff that I say, mine, and I start saying, I wanna bless you. 
It, it opens your grip on your stuff and it tightens your grip to bless one another. Because through the gospel, the Holy Spirit plants a generous seed in the hearts of those who are in Christ. And when the gospel takes hold of your heart, all of a sudden you lose your hold on stuff and you start to hold tight to people in relationships. And so many of you, you spend your days, your hours, your mornings, your evenings trying to accumulate or work for stuff and you miss out on the relationships that God actually desires you to have. And so what happens is, you know, I don't need that. I don't strive for that. I need to let people know I'm in Christ. I'm secure in Christ. There's a seed in Christ and now I live to bless the world. And so what Jesus did for us is that although he was in the form of God, he did not count equality of God with thing to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself. He was rich and he became poor so that you and I could have a home with him. Verse 36. So everything belonged to one another. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, I love the multiple names. I don't know why. I guess you just make up names for people. So there's this man named Joseph. He's also called Barnabas. He's not, this is not the last time we see him in the, in the book of Acts. And his name means son of encouragement. I guess that's why he gets the name. If some of you got good nicknames. Some of you got bad nicknames. How many you know this is a good nickname? Son of encouragement. I'll, t- I'll take that, right? Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas, he lays the money down in order to pick people up. Isn't that awesome? Barnabas, he he loosens his hold on his stuff in order to uh, bring people into the kingdom. This is a picture of a spirit-filled, gospel-transformed man. Look in chapter five. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Everyone say heart. That's what we're talking about. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you contrive this deed, the deed is the lie, why is it that you contrive this lie in your heart? You have not lied to man, but you've lied to God. This is the first mention of Satan after the cross of Christ. And so the first mention before the cross, Satan was trying to kill Jesus. After the cross, now he's trying to destroy the name of Jesus and destroy the testimony of Jesus as Lord and resurrected. And he's trying to destroy the testimony within the church. And so Satan fills your heart is in contrast with being filled with the Holy Spirit that we just talked about last chapter. And so he says, Satan has filled your heart. You're not filled with the Holy Spirit and there's a divisive here. And so let me ask you a question. What do you think's wrong with what they did? I mean, that, I mean what, was, it, was it that they kept part of the money? 
Not at all. I mean, Peter says, listen, he says, it's not that you kept part of the money, right? The problem was that Ananias presented the gift and not that it was the offering was not generous because it was generous. Can we agree that that's generous? It wasn't that he wasn't giving and he wasn't generous. It's that his sin was that he presented that it was the full amount like Barnabas. And so he lied. Why? In order to be seen as more than he was. He wanted to look like weak. And so you can lie to men and you can pretend before others But when you try to lie to the Holy Spirit, he knows the truth of your heart. Look in verse five. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear, everyone say fear. And great fear came upon all who heard it. And the young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Those must have been the interns. They're like, uh, can you guys come in here, please? Do something with this. Verse seven. After an interval of about three hours, then his wife comes in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, hey, uh, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said, how is it? that you have agreed together to test the Spirit. That's a capital S Spirit. That is the Holy Spirit. You've agreed together to test the Holy Spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Verse 10, immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young man came in, they found her dead, and then they carried her out and buried her alongside her her husband, verse 11, and great fear, everyone say fear, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Why did Ananias and Sapphira do what they did? Listen, their lies are symptomatic of a deeper problem. Their lies are coming from a seed that has been planted within them. Namely, their love for money and their love for the praise of people. So they lie in order to keep more money and they lie in order to get the praise of people. Do you see the connection? Barnabas' heart was filled with the spirit and a love for God and so he gave to bless God's people. Ananias' heart was filled with Satan and a love for money, so he lied to get praise from the people. Barnabas lived a life of praise before God in order to be a blessing. Ananias lived a life to get praise from men, which was his blessing. The problem is not that the couple wasn't generous. The sin was because they were only generous because of how it made them look. They lied to God for fame among men. How many times do you and I 
pretend to be something that we're not, that God actually says, I despise that in order to receive the praise from others and our peers. And so sin always comes from somewhere, right? Sin, like lying or, or jealousy or cheating or pretending to perform, these lies, they go down and they're all from the deepest part of our hearts. And we do those things in order to make people think that you're someone you're not. It's like smoke from a fire. Does that make sense? Smoke always leads to the fire around which you're worshiping. And so smoke is not the problem. The fire is the problem. The problem's not the smoke. It's that there's fire in your heart. How many of you, because you're great cooks like me, you put something in the oven, you don't set the time right, or whatever it is, you don't prepare right, and all of a sudden your smoke alarm in the hallway starts going off. I'm the only one. No one ever had that. So what do we do in that moment? That thing goes crazy. You get up right away. What is this? You get a broom, you get a pillow, a blanket, you get something, and you go. That's not what we do. How many of you have ever done that? Come on, be honest. And so you do this until it stops. Oh, oh, it stopped. And then what happens? Like it goes up. You're like, oh my gosh, right? This is our lives. Right, you're fanning the smoke when what you should be dealing with is the fire in the oven. And so what happens is, you know what? We do these things outwardly, but really what's happening is a deeper issue. There's fire here, smoke is the result of the fire. You're with me now. And so, so many are always concerned with the beeping in the sky, right, this, this concern with how others look at you or think about you. And so we work and we work and we work in order to obtain our boss's approval. Or, or we lie to make ourselves look better than we actually are. Or we manipulate the numbers so that we can actually hit the mark so people will honor me and applaud me. And so all of it is created from an absence of understanding the love of God for you. Listen, not some future version of you. The, like right now, that God genuinely cherishes you, but he wants your heart, not just your behavior. Your behavior will follow your heart. And so what happens is we give God our heart. Why? Because he's kind. And so what you need to say is just, listen, it's not that you just need to quit lying. Right? You need to be filled with the love of God. You need not just to fan away the smoke. You need, to, you need to get rid of the fire. Like the reason why I do these things is the problem. And so either the Holy Spirit will fill your heart, which leads to a love for people and the praise of God, or Satan will fill your heart, which leads to a love of money and the praise of people. That's what we're seeing. Let me put it to you this way. A few weeks ago, we looked in Acts chapter 3. And what we did is we looked at the manifestations of God's glory through healing. And so let me, let me give you a synopsis. There's a man who was lame from birth, meaning he couldn't walk. 
Peter and John walk into the temple, see the man at the gate. They heal him in the name of Jesus. He gets up, his legs are healed, and he starts worshiping and praising God, leaping around like a deer, right? And, and so we see this healing in the name of Jesus. And so the miracle of healing is what we said is when God takes something that is true about the kingdom of God, meaning there is no lameness in the kingdom of God, and he puts it on display through a physical healing. And so what we talked about is that one day, Jesus is going to restore all things. And one day, the healing of this crippled man is going to be a glimpse of that future restoration. You remember that? And so one day, no one will be lame, no one will be sick, no one will be uh, broken, no one will have any disease, everyone will be healed. And this healing is a display of that day that's coming. So God chooses to heal this man in order to give us a glimpse of the restoration, and in the same way, God chooses to kill this couple in order to give us a glimpse of the seriousness of sin. Sin is serious before God. And both the healing and the judgment, the kindness and the severity of God should leave us in awe of God. God doesn't heal everyone who's sick or lame, and God doesn't kill everyone who lies to the Holy Spirit. But he gives us a glimpse of his grace and his severity in this text. We should never cover up the fact that what we see happen to Ananias and Sapphira is a picture of how God feels about sin. There is a penalty. There is a future judgment coming for everyone who is not given their sin and repented of their sin in faith in Jesus Christ. And so on the outside, you can look the same, you can talk the same, you can sing the same, you can act the same. The difference was in their heart. On the outside, listen, Ananias and Sapphira looked just like Barnabas. They went to the same church. They were active, they were generous, they dropped money in the joy box, right? All of those things were happening in their lives. But deep in their heart, one had a love for money and a desire for the praise of people that they never repented of. And they had become imitators, never repenting, hiding treasure in their tent. Listen, you cannot hide from God. Everything will be one day exposed. And listen, Ananias and Sapphira, they knew it. They knew that you can't hide from God. Yet they were so consumed with the praise of people that they neglected that truth and, and neglected the fact there's only one opinion that matters. Amen? That's God's. There's only one opinion that matters. A lot of church people are deceived. We're consumed by appearance on the outside. Yet we neglect ever dealing with our heart before God. Think about how much time you think about your appearance versus how much you think about your heart. How much time did you spend this morning preparing your heart for worship versus how much you spent time this morning dressing yourself on the outside and fixing your hair so people would think you look nice? 
Think about it all week. Think about your entire life. How much time do we say, oh, this makes me look good. Oh, this makes me look tall. Oh, this makes me look thin. Oh, this makes me look smart. Oh, this makes me look a certain way. Rather than saying, God, what is in my heart? How do I look before you? Because man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So we're so afraid to take off our mask. We're so afraid to stand up or respond or to look undignified, silly before the Lord because we're worried about maybe coming to the altar. We're afraid to acknowledge that, that the, the filtered me on Instagram isn't the real me. And so we try, to, we try to put filters in the real life so people can't see through the real thing. And so we, we're afraid to lay down our pride. We're afraid to lay down our lust. We're afraid uh, to lay down our greed. We're afraid to, to lay down our bitterness, but rather we just hold it like a seed in our heart because that person hurt me and I'm gonna carry it for 40 years. We're afraid to lay down our anger. And so, and so we're so desperate for approval that we refuse to come to the foot of the cross and lay it all down before Jesus. And we fail week after week after week after week, even though I call you every week, I call us every week to repentance, every week to receive grace. Come to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Come to Jesus to make you righteous. Come to Jesus to wash you clean. Come and receive the power of God and the power of his love that's poured out over all of our guilty stains so that there would be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the Holy Spirit would purify our hearts and purify our minds and purify our lives before him at the foot of the cross. We neglect placing ourselves under the waterfall of God's grace because we're so afraid people will see us with a wet face. I love going to the pool. My girls, they don't get in the water. And if they do, it's only up to here. Ladies, do you know why? That's right. In the same way, we refuse to come and place ourselves under the waterfall of God's grace because we're afraid if we do, people will see that we have a wet face. What happens? The fear of the Lord in the church. What happens? What happened to us understanding the severity of God, the opportunity that we have to receive his grace? Listen to me, friend. Fear is a part of worship. We're sung this uh, song hundreds of years, I guess. It's called Amazing Grace. You know the song? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. There's a line in that song in one of the verses that it says, but it was grace that taught my heart to fear. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and it was grace that my fear was released. Fear of the Lord is a gift from God called grace. 
verse 5, he says, great fear came upon all who heard it. Verse 11, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. What happens? They take their sins seriously. They repent and they worship God through the fear of the Lord. Verse 14, and more and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multiples, both multitudes, both men and women. And so when the church really gets down on their knees and gets on their faces and truly fears our sin before the Lord and come to the cross of Christ, multitudes will follow. So the kind of awe that sees God so mighty and so holy that we would ever dare turn our backs on him, that we would ever dare hide from him, that is a healthy fear. Biblical fear is God's grace that brings about an awe mixed with intimacy. It's, he's so powerful and I want him. He's so powerful, I need to be in him. He's so mighty, I need to be by his side. Let's be honest. When we read this section of Acts, which is probably never heard before preaching us in a church before, but here, here it is, we're preaching it, right? When we read this chapter and we witness the wages of sin displayed and the sudden judgment that is brought on by God, how many of us would read that and find God's actions offensive? Oh, <gasps> How could God ever do that? Many, we view God as this snuggly teddy bear with, with Tinkerbell wings that just flutters around, you know, blessing everybody, you know, sprinkling love and happiness and fairy dust over everyone. Oh, you're so good, you're so wonderful. Listen, if we are offended by the swift judgment of God described here, it reveals our apathy toward God's holiness and our sinfulness. And when we don't understand the holiness of God and the sinfulness of ourselves, we shrink the cross. We belittle the cross and say, Jesus, what Jesus did, that's not that big of a deal because I'm not that bad. What Jesus did is not, it's not that big a deal because God's not that holy. So we just belittle it and we squash it and we couldn't. God is holy. God is so glorious. God is so righteous. That even, even the hidden sin would warrant judgment and death. This is the picture of our seriousness of sin and in relation to God's holiness. So the question we ask is not why did they die, but rather why does he let any of us live? Why, why? I mean, I don't deserve it. That's why it's called grace. Why does he let any of us remain alive? Well, let me tell you, because God is not only holy, God is not only glorious, God is not only righteous, but he's a patient God. Amen? The scripture says he's slow to anger. In fact, he's slow, so slow to anger that when his wrath and his judgment is actually made visible, even in the scriptures, we're shocked and even offended by it. We haven't seen God act like that in a long time. We haven't seen that move of God. I can't believe God would ever do that because you don't understand he's holy and you don't understand you're sinful. And so we forget rather quickly that God's patience is designed to lead us into repentance. 
His patience is given to us to lead us to the cross, to give us time to be redeemed by coming to Christ, confessing our sins, unpacking our tent, opening up our hearts, and say, Holy Spirit, I need a new seed. I don't like this seed. I don't want to just fan smoke my whole life. I want you to put out the fire. And instead of taking advantage of his patience and his kindness and coming to him humbly and receiving Jesus in our place and seeking repentance at the cross of Jesus Christ, we instead rather use his grace as an opportunity to become more bolder in our sin. We say, oh, that's not a big deal. Oh, that sin doesn't matter. No one can see it. It doesn't affect my relationship with anyone else. What's the problem? It doesn't matter. And Satan fills your heart with a lie and deceives you into thinking that God doesn't care about sin as long as you just keep it hidden in your heart. Many Christians become numb to their own sin because we think that the warnings of Scripture don't apply to them, just other people. So many live lives belittling the glory of God, mocking the holiness of God, thinking that we're gonna get away with hidden, unrepented sin. And so we wonder why God isn't giving us victory over even the smallest things. Even the smallest battles I can't seem to win. It's because God's not mocked. Your sin is so severe that it costs Jesus Christ his life. Jesus went through shame to save us, amen? He was betrayed, he was brought before the people, he was beaten, he was marred, he was spit upon, he was bruised, He had nails in his hands and his feet. He had a crown of thorns on his head while the crowds shouted, hey, save yourself. I thought you were somebody. And he's suffering. And listen, when we keep quiet, when we hide and we don't, we neglect our sin, what happens is we neglect the cross and we don't take it seriously. And we just simply put it off. But listen, if we keep putting it off and putting it off and putting it off, how in the world are you going to stand before a holy God? Hebrews, it says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Let me tell you, you're not. If you neglect receiving the cross of Christ for you, And receiving the grace that he's poured out for you just because you were afraid to look silly, you will not escape the wrath of God. Are you lying to the Holy Spirit even right now? Are you pretending to be more spiritual than you are? When you pretend, you don't lie to man, but you lie to God. Many will confess with their voice, Jesus is Lord. But like Ananias and Sapphira, their two biggest idols are their money and their reputation. Money and reputation. If you want to find out how strong your commitment is to Christ, look in those two areas. Are you willing to obey Jesus with your generosity? Are you willing to tell people about Jesus no matter what your reputation may hold? 
Are you willing to stand up for Jesus and share his saving grace regardless of what others say about you? Are you someone who walks into church thinking more about your glory than God's glory? Do you prepare your hearts as much as you do prepare your life? If the truth is that we've all sinned and that we've all fallen short of the righteous requirement of God, if we've all have defamed and belittled the glory of God by pretending and ignoring and hiding our sin before him, how can any one of us with a pure heart stand before a mighty, holy God? Let me tell you, his name is Jesus. Let me close with this last verse. First John chapter one, eight through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a profound, powerful promise for you today. He is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Thinking about this verse this week and I thought, you know what? The, the inverse or the opposite of this text is also true. If we say we have sin, we are honest with ourselves and the truth is in us. But if we refuse to confess our sins, he is faithful and just to condemn us of our sins and to judge us for all of our unrighteousness. If we say we have sinned, we show he is the truth and that the word is in us. The sin only condemns us if we refuse to be honest about it. And our refusal to repent of our sins leads to death. The refusal to seek Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins is absolutely fatal. We all sin. We know that sin is fatal and worthy of death and condemnation. But when we bring our sin to the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus pays for our sin and he clothes us with his righteousness. When Jesus went to the cross, he paid the penalty and the wage for sin for those who believe. And when we confess sin, we're trusting that Jesus is faithful and his work will justify us for the penalty that we deserve. Through faith in Jesus and repentance of sin, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. The irony is this. If you own your sin before Jesus, he will release you from it. If you hide your sin from Jesus, he will condemn you for it. Bring your sin to Jesus. As the band comes, we're gonna close with communion. Today we have an opportunity to partake in a visual picture of what Jesus did for us. The night he was betrayed, he took the bread. And as he broke it, he said, this is my body that was broken for you. Take and eat and do it in remembrance of me.
in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But my blood is the new covenant. Once and for all time, sins will be forgiven and covered when you come to me. And so today we have an opportunity to come as believers to the table and remember Christ and what he's done. But everyone look right at me. The scripture says that before we do that, we should examine our heart. To see to it that you are in the faith. Listen, it doesn't say that we see to it that we've not sinned. It's see to it that we've given that sin to Jesus. Examine your hearts. Have you given your sin to Jesus? It's the most liberating thing that we could ever do as a people, amen? When you give your sin to Jesus and you receive his broken body and his blood shed, you're receiving freedom. You're receiving life, eternal life. You're receiving forgiveness and grace. Yes, we know the kindness of God, but we do it in light of the severity of God. He is good. He is holy. He is worthy of our worship. Let's pray. Oh God, I ask that today you would give us eyes to see I ask today that you would give us ears to hear. And I ask, oh God, that we would see you in a manner that shakes our soul. That we would see you in a way that causes great trembling. But that we would also see your sacrifice upon the cross, oh Lord Jesus seeing for ourselves the wrath of God poured out upon your son so that we could approach your throne and your altar. Oh God, today I pray that we would be quick to confess, quick to unveil, Lord, anything that's keeping us from knowing you. Jesus, forgive us of our sins. Wash us and cleanse us in all righteousness. And we come by faith in the only name under heaven which we can be saved, and that is the name of Jesus. Oh, Jesus, cleanse us. Make us a church that fears you, that loves you, and that is washed pure by you. In Jesus' name.